0: Good morning and welcome to herbert smith freehill's 2021 corporate governance symposium today is the second installment in this year's uh, symposium where we have been focusing on some of the key issues facing consumer facing businesses for today's discussion we will focus on data and the regulatory landscape which is complex and fragmented and can be difficult to navigate in particular we will look at the increased interest in the overlap between data or privacy and disclosure as well as some recent enforcement patterns. This session is being recorded, and in the coming days, we will circulate the recording and a note on the key takeaways. There is also a Q&A function, so please feel free to submit questions, and we will endeavour to answer those questions at the end. I would now like to introduce our four panellists, who all advise clients across a range of sectors, including technology, retail, energy, transport, manufacturing, government, and communications. Liza Carver is a competition partner in our Sydney office and a market-leading competition law and regulatory specialist who previously worked at the ACCC. Patrick Clark is a competition senior associate in our Sydney office and has extensive experience advising clients involved in ACCC investigations. Christine Wong is a commercial litigation partner in our Sydney office and advises clients on significant civil litigation as well as regulatory matters and investigations. Carmen Choi is a special counsel based in our Melbourne office and specializes in privacy, information governance and data security. My name is Aoife Zurep and I'm a senior associate in our Melbourne office specializing in significant consumer litigation and regulatory matters. So turning to our first topic for today, which focuses on the role of competition regulators. And Liza, you might have just explained why, why are competition regulators involved in
1: data use, privacy and consent? Thanks Aoife. Uh, For many the answer to that question is not immediately obvious but to understand competition regulators you need to understand their frame of reference is the economic theory of market economies and of course they want markets to be efficient and competitive. For that to occur consumers need to be informed and understand the value exchange that they're engaging in particularly in an online environment an aspect of many online transactions is the disclosure of personal data by consumers their email address consumption preferences location uh, pattern of online activity Uh, conceptually regulators see the decision of a person engaging online Uh, with businesses as a bargain, a commercial exchange, where the consumer is providing something of value to the business and that is data, data about themselves. So the competition regulator is concerned that consumers understand what data is being collected and how it will be used. Interestingly, uh, competition regulators also see the opportunity for competitive differentiation in service offerings um, uh, by online commercial enterprises. They see the potential for privacy and data use terms and conditions to be a competitive differentiator. And so they see transparency is key to potentially the effective working of competition. And the commission, the ACCC, is, for example, called out DuckDuckGo as a search engine that seeks to differentiate itself on the basis of privacy protection. The CMA in the UK has gone further and actually suggested that once consumers understand the nature of the value exchange they're engaging in, online, well-functioning markets should actually compensate them for their data. So that's the paradigm of the competition regulator. That is why they care about these matters. Thanks, Aoife.
0: Thanks, Liza. And so regulators see an intersection between privacy and data protection laws, consumer protection, and competition. Patrick, how does Rod
2: Sims of the ACCC characterise the concerns? Patrick, I think you may be on mute.
3: Sorry. (laughs) Um, Rod Sims really sees data as the next frontier. Last year at the National Press Club, he said, a coming battleground is data. In some markets, access to data is a key ingredient to offer services and compete. And in some cases, a serious source of market power. What Rod Sims is doing there is putting forward a competition law framing of data issues. Data can make a market position unassailable, and it can be used to insulate a company from competition. One common example of that that's brought forward is social media networks, where the attractiveness of a service increases based on the number of users. By access to data, what SIMS is picking up is the idea that they could be unique or particularly valuable data sets that a downstream company or a competitor needs to compete and that the data holder would refuse to provide access to its potential competitors. The regulator also sees market power as being self-perpetuating. It allows a business to deal with others and to deal with its customers on a take it or leave it basis. So Rod Sims is also concerned about data privacy as a consumer law issue and from that perspective, and that's particularly the case for vulnerable customers. He's suggested that using data to target individuals when they're at their most vulnerable is something that could potentially constitute unconscionable conduct in contravention of the ACL or the Australian Consumer Law. So one might see that happening, for example, in the area of health data. People who are highly, uh, can be highly sensitive about that data, but also those customers could be sick or fearful at the time and not able to make rational decisions or able to pay much attention to disclosures. In terms of the intersection that Rod Sims sees, I think the consumer data right is a really good example of how that plays out. This is a reform that Sims is very committed to. He sees it as the most, one of the most significant economic reforms in a generation. To my mind, it reveals tariff reform, rivals tariff reform and the floating of the dollar is what he said about it. What the consumer data right is intended to do is firstly give consumers greater visibility and control of their data and who has access to it. But another purpose is to increase data portability. It assists the customer to move their data from one supplier to the next. That's directed to increasing customer churn. So in economic terms, removing the cost of customers moving from one supplier to another. But it also deals with that first point that I made about incumbents being able to prevent access to data. The consumer data right is designed to prevent that from happening and so assist new entrants to compete on the merits and grow. So that's the backdrop around which the ACCC is bringing its new cases. And we're really seeing those cases as being ones that seek to raise the legal standard that applies to how data is collected and the disclosures that need to be made to consumers.
0: Thanks, Patrick. And it's interesting that this has been taken up by competition regulators in, in recent times. There are, of course, a number of other regulators whose role means they're also considering these issues around data usage, privacy, and consent. Cameron, could you speak a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Aoife. Um And yeah, I guess the, the regulator that I'm most familiar with in the sort of privacy space is the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, formerly the Privacy Commissioner, and, and, and probably the OAIC is the, is the OG, of data regulators, um, going back to 1989, uh, when we um, had the very early days of the Privacy Act, uh, and you know it's interesting to sort of hear um, you know Patrick talking about the a involvement, things like CDR where there is actually collaboration between the ACCC and the OAIC. We've also seen that on uh, some of the work that the ACCC has been doing, looking into digital platforms, like the big big tech platforms, uh, conducting an inquiry there, which ended up making a lot of privacy recommendations, which have ultimately, um, prompted a review of the Privacy Act, which is uh, you know, obviously the key domain of the Information Commissioner. And the Information Commissioner did have involvement in that ACCC inquiry in the background as well. But we're seeing a lot of other regulators sort of pop up in, in, in this area and, and get more involved. So you've got ASIC, uh, you know, which has, some similar functions to the ACCC in the financial services space, uh, but then also is weighing in on things like cyber resilience um, and cyber breach matters, uh, raising things like directors' duties. We've got the Australian Communications and Media Authority, which looks after the SPAM Act and the Do Not Call Register Act, so in that kind of direct marketing sort of space. uh, We've got APRA. Um, that's um, bringing in requirements relating to information security for the um, financial sector that it's responsible for regulating. And then there's actually a number of state regulators that have roles in relation to um, things like certain health records requirements uh, and also surveillance. So, yeah, quite a a number of different different regulators getting involved. And one of the things that we're sort of seeing is a tension between some of these other requirements that I look at where there are obligations obligations to get certain consents, to give notices to people, to have policies, uh, and then some of the things that you're saying, either in order to comply with those requirements or to actually dispel out what some of your legal obligations are, they can then end up being representations which are getting looked at from an Australian consumer law perspective. And so you can have an issue where, um, you know, trying too hard to comply with some of the privacy requirements can maybe sometimes get you unstuck when you're um, looking at consumer law issues because you're, you're, you're promising too much and then not able to deliver. And we're seeing an increased focus with, with a lot of these regulators around these issues of notice and consent, particularly around the online platforms and social media, but we're gonna sort of see that extend into other spaces and, and that is starting to happen now so we've had guidance from the information commissioner around what is what is an effective consent from a privacy point of view and they they say is the consent informed is it voluntary in the sense that the individual has a choice uh, and they've been talking about something called bundled consent for many years uh, and that you know you shouldn't be kind of wrapping up all of your consents you know into one massive policy or terms and conditions, and expecting everybody to agree to that without having specific choices, particularly about things which are not the necessary uses of the data to provide the service. So that sort of guidance and commentary has been around from the Commissioner for many years. What we're starting to see now is more active enforcement of those issues. We're also starting to see proposals to actually codify some of those requirements in terms of law reform. And the CDR, the Consumer Data Right, that's been the first taste of that. But there is also this Privacy Act review going on at the moment. And this is one of the issues being looked at. What is the standard of consent? How do we deal with this issue of uh, the umpteen notices that consumers are receiving, the incredible detail that there is about the different uses of their data um, and how that's communicated to them. What's the balance between where it's where you're not telling people enough, where you're being too vague, and when you when you're telling them too much that they're actually sort of snowed under by the volume of information? So the reforms are potentially going to look at things like having a standard format uh, for for notices, um, potentially having uh, default positions. So the default needs to be kind of a pro privacy default. Um, are you able to deny access to a service if somebody refuses to agree to uh, a, a sort of a secondary use of data which is not necessary for the provision of the service? Um, yeah, some of these are the sorts of things uh, that are being looked at. But uh, Christine, I think you had some some additional comments about uh, what else is happening in, in the regulatory space?
2: Well, I mean, if uh, the number of or the litany of regulators and reforms that uh, Carmen just referred to it well not enough, in addition to that there are sort of other separate industry bodies closely looking at these sort of privacy consumer protection dimensions of data. So, there's a, currently a review underway of the ABA's Banking Code of Practice um, and in that review they're seeking comments about the safe and secure handling of data and whether banks should commit to providing protection for consumers that actually go beyond the CDR regime as well as things around ethical implementation and use of digital technologies. So obviously the space is just under sort of massive review um, and scrutiny from from a range of um, places at the moment.
0: Thanks, Christine. Um, Turning now to our second topic. So this is really a discussion around how competition regulators across the globe are increasingly focusing on consumer data, both as a consumer protection issue and increasingly important aspects of the competitive process. Um, Liza, what are the key takeaways from the recent ACCC and Google case?
1: Thank you, Ava. Uh, I I won't go into the detailed facts of the Google case, as anyone who advises on consumer law cases knows. uh, They're invariably highly fact-dependent, but from most important consumer law cases, and this is one of those, you can derive principles that we need to understand. And what we see in this case, and what we're seeing in other cases being brought by uh, consumer and competition regulators around effectiveness of disclosure around data use and privacy settings on on online transactions, some of which Patrick will speak to in a minute, uh, is something of a paradigm shift. For us as external and internal legal advisors, the days where you could clear marketing collateral by sitting at your desk and reading a script, frankly, are long gone for uh, disclosures uh, and representations in an online environment. The Google case demonstrates the absolute need to look at the effectiveness of the process of information communication through an interactive online environment. And what I think we see in that case, which Patrick is about to speak to, is the use of quite sophisticated and detailed techniques by prosecutors and the court to understand how consumers behave and react to information presented to them online. Patrick, if you want to go through the three themes that we think come from this case.
3: Absolutely. Thanks, Liza. Yeah, look, I think the three things that we take away from this case together really show um, how the ACCC is going to look at the kind of data disclosure processes that companies put in place and how the courts are also going to assess those processes. The first point to understand and the first step in the ACCC's process and the court's process Will be to characterize different classes of customer and from there flows the ways that the ACCC will be able to suggest that those classes of customers might have been misled what the ACCC is doing is dividing customers into different types based on one aspect on their concern for data privacy so some users might have greater concern about how their data is used they might pay more attention to the process they might go further into the privacy settings but others are likely to only have a cursory look and uh, allow their data to be disclosed. The different ways that these different classes will interact with the website is important. It means that legal teams need to think about adopting those different uh, classes of customer perspectives, not just thinking about the one perspective that they might apply themselves, and then thinking from there, was the disclosure sufficient or was it misleading? The second step in the ACCC's process uh was the use of expert evidence on behavioral economics to s- assess how each of the customer classes would go about interacting with the website or with the app behavioral economics looks at the kind of irrational uh biases that people might have that types of people will have based on uh what their their um, intention is what the ec- economists do is they ask for any particular set of navigational screens, what is the cost benefit analysis for this type of customer of going further? Is there a marginal benefit in economic terms of looking further and finding out how my data would be collected and how it was gonna be used? The other piece that behavioral economics adds to this is the acknowledgement that human behavior in dealing with these navigational processes isn't gonna be purely rational. But when people do act irrationally, those decisions are to some extent predictable. We can think about what the type of customer might do. Some customers are time poor, some others are going to not be able to take into account all of the factors on a kind of cold analytical basis. And lots of people will use shortcuts to infer or make decisions about what their choices might mean. So for example, if I've just burnt the dinner, I'm definitely just gonna say accept on the food delivery app and get food as quickly as possible. And if I really trust the clothing brand that I use, then I might expect them to be a responsible company that will also treat my data well. <clears throat> so, how the ACCC casts the cast of the customer is really important to understanding, firstly, the setting of those behavioural biases. And that really affects how the analysis of the navigation through the app or website uh, will, ta- will be assessed by the ACCC and by the courts. And the third thing to understand really flows from those two the court in this case really undertook quite a detailed step-by-step assessment of what it took called choice architecture and that's really the entirety of the design of the various screens and options that users would face when they interact with the app and deciding or thinking about what users might do at each step so it's clear as legal advisors when we're looking at these kinds of uh, apps or, or websites and thinking about how users would interact you really need to understand what, that the architecture itself can actually affect how much users need to expend effort to find out about what's happening to their privacy, to their data, and what's, what kind of privacy settings are. And it will affect the ways that they navigate through the app. So overall, that really means that, as Liza said, that static approach of just reading all the terms and conditions together uh, is not gonna put us in a position where we can advise on the risk the company might face the ACCC and the courts won't approach the issue in that way. They're really going to think about the customer journey.
0: Thanks, Patrick. Um, And the ACCC, or at least Rod Sims, likes to be seen to be leading the pack internationally. Um, We saw this, for example, with the Media Bargaining Code. Patrick, are the ACCC concerns consistent with other regulators?
3: Yeah, look, absolutely. I think particularly with the regulators in Europe, the CMA and the European Commission, uh, there's a lot of alignment between the regulators and between Rod Sims' own position. And in fact, I even read this morning that Sims is actually speaking at a global competition review webinar today and on exactly the topic of the greater need for global coordination, uh, particularly in relation to app store regulation. So look, there are many examples of cases overseas uh, that are dealing with similar issues to the ones that the ACCC is taking up um, here in Australia. A couple of good examples relate to Facebook. Um, the German and Italian competition regulators there are effectively have effectively been alleging that Facebook's been engaging in misleading disclos- disclosures about its use of data. The German case in particular is quite interesting because that's taken under competition law and it's quite a novel combination of privacy and competition laws, uh, at least for Germany. And that's of course, resulting in it running through all the German courts and just now this year, um, being referred to the European courts of justice. What the allegation there was from the federal cartel office in Germany is that Facebook was effectively imposing terms and conditions on its users that they couldn't opt out of. And what those terms allowed Facebook to do was to combine data that it collected from both Facebook-owned websites and apps, but also non-Facebook-owned websites and apps, and then combine that all with the user's Facebook account. And that was, of course, used to um, assist in the targeting of advertisements. What, one of the points that the Federal Cartel Office focused on was the fact that any website using the Facebook analytics service, so that's a kind of back-end ad tech, uh, service that third-party websites would use, that wouldn't be apparent to the user that data on those completely separate websites being collected about the user would ultimately be coming back to Facebook. Andreas Munt, who's the head of the competition regulator, really put the issue in the same way as Sims puts his own market power concerns. Munt said that it was Facebook's superior market power that meant that just a requiring user to tick the I agree box. Was not an adequate basis for intensive data processing. Effectively, the tr- user has the choice only to accept the combination of all data um, being collected and used, or entirely refrain from using the network. They're the kind of bundled concerns that Carmen was mentioning previously. And then I think only a, another really good example is just even taking a cursory look at the CNA's uh, market study into online platforms and digital, digital advertising from last year. It really is very similar to what the ACCC produced in its DPI and the issues that it's continuing to consider in its ongoing monitoring reports. They're really singing from the same hymn sheet. The CMA has also referred to survey evidence and uh, particularly academic studies that show the low consumer engagement with privacy policies and with privacy settings. Carmen, I think you were talking also about interesting dark patterns. (laughs) What's that all about?
4: Yeah, it's a strange term uh, and I think it's one that maybe came up in this kind of behavioural economics area, you know, sort of before it kind of entered the legal realm, Um, but I think what we're seeing is an illustration uh, uh, sort of, you know, not only of uh, some of these regulators sort of taking action and you know based on existing laws whereas actually new laws are being developed to kind of address this specifically uh, and I look to the example of California where their new privacy legislation the CCPA is now banning uh, dark patterns as they're called that delay or obscure the process uh, for opting out of the sale of personal information uh, because there's supposed to be a consumer right about whether you allow your personal information to be sold to a third party, and that concept of "sold" is is quite broad under under that legislation. Um, and so, you know, for people who are wondering what a dark pattern is, and we've talked about some of the kind of um, processes that you see online. But uh, uh, anybody that's been online and tried to cancel an online subscription, if you think about how hard it is to cancel an online subscription compared to how hard it is to take it up, then you know what a dark pattern is. If you've gone onto one of these online services that tries to steer you towards um, using email or online chat when you require customer support uh, and have tried to find a telephone number to actually call someone and speak to someone, then you know what a dark pattern is.
0: Thanks Carmen. Uh, Christine, is this enforcement activity emerging with other regulators as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as Carmen alluded to at the outset, the OIC is actually been in place for quite a number of decades now but it seems to have been spurred into more recent action by the ACCC's sort of enforcement activity as well. Um, So a couple of its recent actions really confirm its focus again on those issues of really informed consent um, to data use and secondly also whether organisations are taking reasonable steps to prevent misuse of data. So a key matter, and one that's first of its kind for the Information Commissioner, is the proceedings that were commenced against Facebook last year for breaches of the Privacy Act. Um, This is just one strand of the sort of global enforcement activity that Facebook is facing and that Patrick spoke about um, in Germany as well. This matter is still in its early stages here, but the allegations do have the flavour of the misleading and deceptive type conduct cases brought by the ACCC, but don't require that customers were actually misled. A key allegation is that Facebook's disclosure of personal and sensitive information of users to third party app developers resulted in that information being used for political profiling by third parties that occurred without adequate consumer consent, it said in breach of um, APP6. The way that the case is pled draws parallels with the choice architecture type evidence in the ACCC cases with the information, information Commissioner saying that Facebook's service design made it difficult for users to exercise consent or control over disclosure of personal information to those third-party apps. The default settings permitted the disclosure as a starting point, and it was very difficult for users to navigate the multiple layers to reverse that. As Delise and Patrick have said, that confirms that a static approach to assessing disclosure and consent comes with real risk, with regulators and courts examining much more closely the substance rather than the form of what consumers understand and are consented to. The second key plank of the allegations is that Facebook failed to take reasonable steps to protect information from unauthorised use and disclosure, a breach of APP 11. A range of deficiencies here have been pointed to, so this, is, this includes failures by Facebook to undertake initial assessments and regular reviews of whether the third party app developers were actually complying with Facebook's terms and conditions. Facebook is also criticised for failing to maintain sufficient records of information then disclosed to those third parties. That demonstrates regulatory expectations around data governance practices and the need for them to be robust but also regularly reviewed. It's not going to be enough to set and forget and organisations may need to consider Whether they have appropriate oversight over how information they share with third parties is then being used by those third parties. Um, That focus on broader sort of data governance policies and procedures is also demonstrated in some of the recent actions relating to cyber attacks um, that Carmen mentioned at the outset. So ASIC sort of looking at it for financial services entities under their general AFSL obligations. Um, But also the Information Commissioner has recently taken action against companies whose security systems are alleged to have been deficient, leaving customer information vulnerable in cyber attacks.
0: Thanks, Christine. Um, We'll move shortly to our third topic. And before we do, just um, encourage everyone who's attending today's webinar to feel free to submit any questions um, through the the Q&A function. our third topic is really picking up on some of the comments that Liza and Patrick have made before in terms of competition regulators really focusing on the online marketplace with the consequence that um, there is an increase in the practical compliance burden for businesses. Patrick, what are the key risks that you see that um, you think in-house council should really be aware of?
3: I think the first one um, is really to be clear that that the Google case is not limited in its application to just digital platforms or data-driven businesses. You know, we we think that case could equally have been brought against a retailer, someone like David Jones um, or Woolworths. So effectively, um, these are you know issues that your business really needs to face if you're collecting customer data, and in addition, if you're exchanging data with third parties because of the need to disclose potentially how that data is being used after you disclose it. It really means that we've got clients dealing with these issues across lots of sectors. Energy companies collect customer data, financial businesses do, telcos do, almost every retail business does. And uh, you know there's the health sector as well. So I think the important thing is to acknowledge that this is a risk that lots of businesses are facing. And of course, we've been focusing on consumers because that's where the Google case is focused. But um, the application of the ACL is also extends to other business dealings, particularly with small businesses. Christine, are there any other issues you kind of see around um, this enforcement trend?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Patrick. So, I mean, the cases are increasingly pleaded as well as both false and misleading conduct, but also as conduct that may be liable to mislead the public. And that's because the potential audience is broad, particularly when you're looking at sort of mass-marketed products and services and apps. Um, so it's not just individuals that are being affected by the conduct or a class of persons, but possibly you know, the public at large. If, if claims are brought on both those bases, that effectively doubles the potential set of contraventions and doubles the theoretical maximum penalty that companies are looking at as well. For liable to mislead the public um, claims, that does require proof of an actual probability that the public would be misled. So the legal standard is slightly higher. But it is a really important reminder of how large the exposure can be it could extend to thousands of affected customers companies could also see themselves exposed to increasing enforcement action for breaches of the privacy act as we've just mentioned Um, and we're also seeing emerging class action risk um, around breach of contract negligence and other causes of action where there is data misuse there have also been representative complaints um, for breaches of the Privacy Act started in the um, Information Commissioner's jurisdiction as well. So it's an emerging space as the sort of regulatory and consumer expectations shift and increase. um, That's also sort of being followed by enforcement activity um, and risks around around different sorts of claims.
0: Thanks, Christine. And Patrick, what kind of practical guidance would you give arising out of, out of all of this a triple c focus and activity and how can those risks be managed
3: thanks yeah look i think that's the really important thing um to to pass across in all of this because we can talk about lots of different risks but unless we really think about how best to deal with them um, it's not particularly helpful <coughs> the first one that we think um is is most important to think about is that companies are particularly the in-house legal teams may need to update or change the way that they approach assessing risk. As Liza was mentioning before, we think there's a real change in the paradigm that needs to be adopted. Um, we need to move make sure that we're moving from the kind of static assessment that previously was done to a much more dynamic one focused on customer classes, different customer classes and the disclosure process rather than just the terms and conditions. <laughs> And we've also talked about behavioral economics. Now, that's not to confuse the whole issue. It's just to explain that that's the the view that the regulator will adopt. And we should always, as legal advisors, be trying to put their hat on and think about how they'll conduct their analysis. Now, of course, adopting the kind of irrational or unexacting perspective uh, is not really a core skill for lawyers. But one of the other things that we're seeing is that really the marketing and design teams within the business They are actually thinking about um, these issues, these navigational processes already in the context of designing websites and designing apps. In fact, that's exactly how they think about selling their product or service. They're always focused on the customer experience, asking what will the customer think about this? How do I get the message across as clearly as possible? How do I minimise friction um, in my navigational process? So it may be that the legal teams can actually look to the business to apply those skills to assist the legal
4: review. Carmen, yeah, I just think to pick you... up on that point, Patrick, about um, minimizing friction. Uh, you know, I think some of these teams—they sometimes call them the uh, UX teams, the user experience. Uh, you know, and they're sort of so focused on making the transaction flow as smooth and seamless as possible uh, to make it as you know easy as possible for the consumer to get to the endpoint and actually make that transaction and so anything which introduces friction into that process is a concern and they're always looking for ways to streamline it so you know that's always going to be the challenge uh, where you sort of you know have those teams sort of working together um, with with the legal teams to sort of work out well what do you need to actually tell people from from a legal perspective uh, you know is that there's always going to be that tension between those legal issues, those consents that you need to obtain, you know, essentially being viewed as as friction in the process and sort of how do you kind of resolve that. And so some of that will be finding ways to actually um, integrate that as smoothly as possible into the process, but at some points there may also need to be sort of an assessment of do we need all of these consents, do we need to use all of this data for all of these purposes, uh, and sometimes you might be actually weighing that up, um, particularly where it's, you know, we've moved past the days of everything being able to kind of exist in a, uh, you know, sort of 10-page set of terms and conditions, and you can cover, you know, every imaginable use of data in in those. Once you need to start getting consent from consumers for uh, individual and distinct uses, well, how prepared are you to actually introduce that friction into the process in order to get those consents? And so you're you're really weighing up what is the value of the data and what is the value of that use of the data?
3: Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Carmen. And look, I think with all of that, what we can see is there's lots of different processes that can be uh, happening at a business when these, you know, the new products being developed, legal's working in one stream, marketing's working in another, and indeed one of our, um, uh, attendees has sent through the question, what practical steps can in-house take to address both from a data, data privacy perspective, the, uh, the issues that legal are facing, and also the review of the terms and conditions, particularly when we've got limited times and time and resources. I think the only thing that we can recommend there was exactly the next point that we're about to move to. Um, this dynamic assessment of a process is it takes more time uh, than what previously would have been done. Uh, you know it's not really something that can be dealt with with a, a sign off by legal at the very end of the process. I think what we'd recommend is that uh in-house counsel seek to be ensure that they're involved as early as possible.
4: <clears throat>
3: um, when these kinds of processes are being considered as well you know previously you could change a word in a headline you could change what the the, um, the key message was and hopefully still fit that within the format but when we're looking at processes, we've really found dealing with clients that even what we might think of as legal advisors being very simple edits, you know, can we just add a new link or can we add a new line here, actually involves a lot of engineering work in the back end um, and sometimes just can't be done by product launch. So again, I think this, the only way through that is to engage as early as possible with the business. Um, I guess you need your antenna out to find out what product's happening uh, way before, they, um, before they're close to launch. But it also means that this needs to be a process that is constantly under review and something that, you know, the C-suite and the board is aware of as being an important issue. Um, I think that assists the business to know um, that these processes are something that needs to be looked at by legal carefully and that if they're not in contact with you, then that can actually cause real issues for the C-suite, real delays um, and real difficulties. So I think what flows from that is is really the understanding that this is gonna to need to be an ongoing process of review. And that's also the case because the business is collecting data and using data, and likely to, that's likely to change uh, exactly what's collected and why it's collected over time, which means that the disclosure is inevitably gonna change. In fact, lots of clients that we're dealing with at the moment know that they want to collect the data, feel that it must have some value in future, but they actually don't know what to do with it yet. Um, that can take can really create real issues, Carmen. I think you were saying there was a couple of touch yeah. points that you see when increased risk can arise
4: yeah absolutely and i I guess just on that point you're making Patrick about you know sort of engaging early and sort of being involved in the process rather than just having a sign off at the end in 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 privacy land, we call this privacy by design, uh, so the idea that you're really kind of integrating privacy into the whole process, into the actual um, design of the service, the facility, the the online platform, whatever it is. Uh, And so that you're thinking about these um, issues, not just as a set of legal words, but, uh, you know, but something much broader, much more integrated than that. And so in terms of these different points in time, where there can be issues, you know, you're sort of saying that sometimes, uh, you know, business are trying to think of, um, the fact that they might want to collect all this data and not always sort of sure immediately what they want to do with it, uh, but want to try and cover off as much as possible um, early on, um, you know, that, that can be a challenge because you've got that sort of tension between um, wanting to um, think about it as much as you can up front so that you do get the right consents from the beginning, uh, and but sort of balancing that against not over collecting uh, data uh, and collecting data that you know just for kind of a speculative purpose just because you might need it and and one of the areas we're sort of seeing this at the moment um, not in the consumer context probably more in the employer context might spill over into con- uh, the consumer context and, and retail shortly but is in, uh, in relation to COVID uh, vaccinations and employers um, wanting to collect data about whether their employees are vaccinated um, but not necessarily knowing right now exactly what they might want to do with it, and, and, and um, how then they're able to kind of communicate that to employees, particularly while we're in this kind of limbo state where there's not necessarily kind of clear guidance from the government around when people are required to be vaccinated in, in different circumstances. So you have this issue where if you've got a data set and it's been collected on on one basis, uh, you know, and then um, six months, two years, whatever it is down the track, you now decide you want to do something different with that data set. Uh, well, you're gonna need to go back and look at, well, what was the basis on which it was collected? Uh, and do we um, do we have the ability to now use it for this expanded purpose? Um, do we need to go back and get a further consent? There is that challenge. It can be difficult to sort of get a refresh consent for existing data just because of the... Um, Uh, you know, the difficulties in relation to the way you're actually interacting with those individuals on an ongoing basis Uh, and so then you potentially have uh, this issue where you've got um, possibly a a pool of data that's come in from different sources and it's potentially been collected on the basis of different notices and consents. And so you you then have that issue about how do you actually reconcile what can you do with the data do you just take the, the sort of lowest standard and apply that across the board or do you do this thing a little bit like what we're seeing in uh you know, in in these ACCC cases where you're actually dividing consumers into in, into different categories and 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 that's that is part of what um it, what these organizations uh, are doing already um in a commercial sense maybe more than a legal sense you know they call it uh, customer segmentation So this would be customer segmentation, not on the basis of spend or income or interest in particular types of products, but customer segmentation based on uh, consents and based on the source of information and how the information was collected, things like that. Yeah, absolutely, Carmen. And look, I think the only other practical
3: point that we would uh, probably remind people about is that... In assessing the profile, the risk profile of the business, you can't forget to consider the overlay, at least in the ACCC's case, of its focus on competition. So it might be relevant to think more broadly um, in assessing the risk of particular data collection process than just whether the customer is misled. The ACCC is going to apply its market power lens. It would think about, if it ever got interested, why are you collecting the data? Are you using it to have an unfair advantage or are you using it to lock customers in? And they'll also think about, the ACCC will also think about uh, the bargaining imbalance between customers and the business.
2: <clears throat>
3: Has there been a fair uh, exchange is effectively what they're thinking about. So those factors are ones that we would keep in mind um, because they might be the difference between just a tough discussion with the ACCC and becoming the next test case.
4: Yeah, and one more I might jump in with, uh, you know, in terms of kind of practical tips, uh, and I guess to kind of state it at its most basic is don't overpromise and underdeliver, especially when you don't have to. Um, so time and time again, we see in privacy policies or other representations that, are, that companies are making about privacy, statements that go beyond uh, what they um, even need to say, from a privacy law point of view or, or actually what the standard is under privacy law uh, and so potentially you then may you're committing yourself to a higher standard so we see things like we will never disclose your personal information without your consent um, now privacy law has uh, you know a whole range of um, other permitted grounds on which you're able to disclose personal information but if you're now going out and saying we won't disclose your personal information without your consent, well, you, you then need to be pretty careful about ensuring that you're able to to uh, meet that commitment. Um, so while it can sort of sound reassuring to the consumer and 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 by all means, if you're prepared to stand by it as an organisation, um, you, you know, absolutely, but, but go into it with open eyes. And I guess the flip side of that, um, in terms of what is already out there is, um, you need to actually understand now what representations you've made in the past um, so that you're able to actually align your data handling practices with that because it may not just be about complying with the privacy act or other legal standards you may also need to make sure that you're complying with what you've said in the past really good points uh, um christine on the enforcement side yeah and, and i think
2: traditionally some of this privacy and data usage um, sort of compliance activity has been sort of an in-house compliance thing, sort of businesses self-monitoring things, not that much actual external litigation sort of driving things as well. But I think those days are starting to become behind us. And so organisations really need to be considering whether their data practices um, overall, both in relation to specific products, but their sort of overall data governance practices, processes, policies will withstand scrutiny. Um, before a court or in some form of regulatory investigation. I mean, these sorts of issues remind me a little bit of AML-CTF type breaches in that sort of one event or incident or practice can give rise to thousands of breaches in respect of thousands of customers. And that's precisely the sort of argument that's being run in the Commissioner's uh, Facebook proceedings with over 300,000 affected users potentially and a maximum penalty of 1.7 million per breach it's easy to see how the theoretical maximum liability can balloon to very significant levels Um, and there's also of course the sort of reputational damage that can flow from that And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg that we're now seeing in terms of litigation arising from misuse of data Um, the government's current review of the privacy act that Carmen's talked about is looking at a number of levers which would drive improved compliance by business um, and litigation and enforcement risk so Those include consideration of increased penalties for breaches, um, a direct direct right of action for consumers, and a statutory tort for serious invasions of privacy. Um, It's fair to say the Information Commissioner is not as well resourced as some of its uh, regulatory counterparts like ASIC or the ACCC, so that's another piece that the government's also looking at in terms of increasing its funding and um, capabilities. I think the sort of final message we, um, or one of the final messages we thought useful to leave um, the audience with is, there's obviously real benefits here and opportunity for in-house counsel to be upskilling in these areas and to be adding value to business. Data is obviously a big value and growth driver for all organisations, particularly consumer ones. Um, It's where boards and the C-suite are looking to improve business performance. And so planning today so that the business is better able to use its data flexibly and in a way that doesn't give rise to huge enforcement and litigation risk is a chance to add value. It is obviously gonna be a key risk area as well. And so having literacy on what those risks are, how regulators are assessing them, um, those things are gonna be core competencies for the next generation of in-house counsel and GCs. And finally, um, I think all the panellists would agree with me, this is just a really interesting and dynamic area to be involved in as a legal practitioner, but also as consumers ourselves that come across these issues in our day-to-day lives. Um, We think we'll probably look back on this in five years and um, be remarking on just how much the area has changed.
0: Thanks, Christine. And just looking, we've had some great questions submitted through the the Q&A function, so we might turn to those. The first maybe for for you, Carmen, is around privacy by design is a great concept, um, but it's often viewed as a nice to have. And is there a a fast track way to really um, tick the necessary boxes with marketing campaigns as they arise?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the challenges, I guess, has been that the privacy law is sort of principles based. Uh, A lot of it's very high level and, uh, you know, there's not necessarily a sort of specific legal obligation that says that you need to do privacy by design. Now, that something like that may come as a result of the review, um, but I guess there, there are sort of different ways to approach this. But, uh, you know, in terms of trying to do things, uh, you know, in, in situations where organisations are time poor, certainly one part of it, I guess, would be to conduct training across the organisation so that... You know, it doesn't just fall to legal every time, and and, and people throughout the organisation actually understand that these sorts of things um, are an issue, and so they're not um, trying to do these things in the first place. That they they're not sort of going in with an expectation that the terms and conditions are going to solve every problem, uh, and and are aware that the way they actually design the um, the process flows. Um, you know, can can sort of impact on these legal issues as well. So, uh, you know, there's that sort of greater education piece uh, where you sort of devolve the knowledge somewhat and you may actually even have, you know, within different business units, you know, uh, privacy champions uh, that are kind of responsible within their teams for looking out for these issues so that, you know, by the time it does get to legal review, some thought's already been put into these processes already, even, even if it's by people that aren't lawyers.
0: Thanks, Carmen. Um, We've also had a question in relation to misleading or deceptive conduct and and how the need to think about classes of consumers sits with the legal standard of a a reasonable consumer. Um, A really great question and and one that I might just throw open to the panel generally to to hear people's thoughts.
1: I I might start with that, Aoife. Uh, I think this concept of the reasonable consumer is often um, misunderstood as the conception of a reasonably rational hypothetical person and that is the benchmark against which we assess the effectiveness of communications and disclosures. That's actually not the legal standard. The legal standard applied in misleading and deceptive conduct cases is to look at the target audience. Uh, with all the complexities associated with who that target audience might be, their cognitive capacity, their level of education, their time availability, their proficiency with the language and look within that audience for, if you like, the reasonable member of those subclasses uh, having regard to that full spectrum of, of the audience that one is likely to be trying to communicate with with an online uh, communication, which is, after all, often a broadcast to the world. What I think is fascinating, uh, but one of the fascinating things about the Google case, and it's not unique internationally, the Europeans were ahead of the curve on this, is the introduction of behavioural economics in understanding classes of consumers and how they react to information and process. After all, and I've often been mildly entertained by this thought arguing these cases in court, here we are a bunch of um, uh, university educated professionals submitting propositions to an even more elevated university educated individual in the form of a judge about the behaviour of people in the general community, which is not something that a judge can take judicial notice of. So the introduction in the past, the courts tried to inform themselves through survey evidence. And to be frank, I think uh, the use of uh, poor survey evidence has discredited the practice in ACL cases. And we now have this new paradigm, which is trying to help us uh, university educated professionals, talk to another university educated professional about how the the full gamut of an audience of consumers might react to information and behavioral economics, I think are going to, is going to change the paradigm there. So who is the reasonable consumer? Um, I, I think that is a question that could misdirect people.
0: Thanks, Liza. I mean, it's a fascinating development, seeing behavioural economics um, and how that's going to play out. Patrick, were you going to add to, to Liza's comment? I was
3: just going to add that, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's why the characterisation of multiple classes of consumer is so important to the Google case. You know, that's how we see the flow from the class to how that class interacts or could interact um, with the navigational process that the app or the website involves and where the behavioural economics comes in to help Think about the different biases um, that that particular class might have. So I think, you know, looking at the Google case, it's not particularly long. In this section um, would be really potentially really helpful for in-house counsel to see how are the ACCC characterising the type of class, and by characterising in a particular way, how are they then linking that to the expected behavioural biases that they then say lead to the misleading outcome. So there's a link through that process. Um, that actually follows the navigational process.
0: Thanks, Patrick. And I think it's it's a topic that we could devote another um, one hour session to easily, I think given all of the various um, interesting aspects of it, but um, conscious of the time and really just to thank our panelists and our valued clients for taking time out of your day to, to join us today. As always, we are welcome, we welcome the opportunity to continue the conversation and are very happy to discuss any further questions that you might have. Um, our third and, and final instalment in this year's symposium will take place next Thursday, the 26th of August at 1.30, and you can register by using the instructions contained in the invitation for this event. Um, Next week, Jason Betts and Ruth Overington from our market-leading class actions team will be joined by Julian Schimmel, Principal of Morris Blackburn, and Gavin Beardsell from Omni Bridgeway to discuss the class action risks emerging for consumer-facing businesses in what has been an unprecedented 12 months in the Australian class action landscape. We look forward to seeing you then. Thank you for your time and stay safe.
4: Thanks, everyone.